Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm your host, James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we're covering the increase in bathing waters rated poor across England's murky coastlines. From dirty coastlines to a waste win in court against the Environment Agency by Suez. And the government pledged to create a new national park out of the ashes of areas of outstanding natural beauty. And finally, for this week's deep dive, we'll be indulging you with the net gain offerings at ENDS Report, a conference extraordinaire next week and a new film out today. So let's get to it, folks, as we explore this week's Eco Chamber. I've missed saying that, you know. Right, the government is in hot waters this week following revelations that the quality of our 424 bathing waters in England have slipped this year in standard compared to last. The bathing season is ring-fenced between May to September and the results are in. And they're stinkier. To help me wade through the news, I'm joined by Enzaport, Shosha AD and Pippa Neal. Shosha, this is the government's own data you've looked at. Can you give our listeners a breakdown of the stats? I can. 18 of the bathing waters tested in England were rated as poor, which shows an increase in the past two years. Because in 2022, 12 were rated as poor, and in 2021, only four. Sadly, the number of sites previously rated as excellent also slipped this year um, from 302 in 2022 to 281 in the the latest. Okay, so the really bad ones have got worse and the really good ones have got worse. We actually gained four new bathing sites this year, um, two of which were river sites, which is quite significant because there aren't many, most are coastal waters. Um, and DEFRA has also de-designated one of its previous bathing sites because of coastal erosion, you can't access it anymore. Okay, so if you can't beat them, erode into the sea. <laughs> what does it mean then if my bathing site is classed as poor? So what the EA actually measure is the levels of E. coli and intestinal enterococci. I might be saying that word completely wrong, in which case people can laugh at me. That's fine. Uh, These indicate whether there is like fecal matter in the water, which can come from many sources, um, including sewage, for example, agricultural livestock, wildlife, birds, roads, um, the lot. So if a bathing water is then classified poor when this is measured, it means the levels that have been detected across a range of samples taken over the bathing season um, don't meet the minimum standard, which means the levels of bacteria are high and they're harmful to human health. So that's why this is an issue. So then advice against bathing there will be issued by the Environment Agency to protect people from those harmful bacteria, um, as well as information about pollution sources that it's coming from um, and what actions being taken to clean it up. So that doesn't mean you can't swim there, but I mean, I would avoid. And is that the point of a designation then? Yeah, it's so having um, a designated bathing water means that in areas people are swimming, they can actually access information about whether it's going to potentially see a detriment to their health. Um, it's also great because it means regulators actually have to monitor and publish data on the bacterial levels. So many campaigners as well, um, like those on the River Ilkley, have used the designation to put additional pressure on water companies, as well as others in the area that might be polluting those water sources, uh, because they know it's going to be checked. Um, 
So that's a great tool in the arsenal. And also because of the storm overflow reduction plan targets, um, the water quality in areas that are known to be bathing sites and have been registered as such will have to be improved. So storm overflows discharging into those areas, I think need to be improved by 2030, which is the earliest deadline um, of all all the storm overflow targets. And for those uh, listeners who don't know what a storm overflow is, that's just the emergency release valve for our sewage network where rainwater and effluent can at times be released if it gets over, if the system gets overloaded with something like rainwater. Yes. Okay. The data set doesn't sound very good to me, but what have campaigners said, Pippa? Giles Bristow, who's the chief executive of Surfers Against Sewage, said that you know things are bad when even the Environment Agency's dodgy testing system can't cover up the miserable state of water quality in England. But I I just wanted to point out here that it was quite amazing the way that the Environment Agency's press release on this did manage to put such a positive spin on such a negative story. Um, The headline they went with was 96% of English bathing waters meet required quality standards, which as just (laughs) yeah, so yeah, it's great skills coming out the press office there. But um, (laughs) as Shosh has explained, it's not quite as positive as they made it seem. Um, And Hugo Tagholm, who we actually interviewed on episode 34 of the Eco Chamber, said, um, and he's the executive director of Oceana UK, he described the data as no surprise given the scale and extent of the sewage pollution scandal. It is interesting because Hugo and uh, Giles, they don't hold back. Um, And both previously or now at Surface Against Sewage, so maybe there's sort of an SAS vibe with their attitudes. Um, power team power team um and yeah go, go on then pippa so we've heard from the campaigners what has defra said um in the kind of the spin of all this yeah so as i said they definitely had a glass half full attitude and the new defra water minister robbie moore said that our bathing waters have improved significantly in recent years and said that they are fully committed to seeing the quality of our coastal waters, rivers and lakes rise further for the benefit of the environment and everyone who uses them. Excellent talk. Let's not address the statistics. <laughs> it's all great. It probably is quite important to note, like, he is, he is true that we have seen this rise in the standard of the bathing water qualities. And it is, you know, this percentage, 96% achieving excellent is good you know a lot of the waters that we use to swim in are clean but you know all of them need to be good I think that's sort of the point that campaigners are saying and also you know most of the places that people swim inland a lot of the river spots aren't a designated bathing water so they're not being assessed and that's not being factored into that statistic so it'd it'd be great if they did a bit more monitoring I think. And that's then because whereas we're looking at sort of the last three years of data, you know, the government's unfairly, fairly looking at a longer data set. Okay, so, okay, it's it's doing better in in the round, but not the last, not recently. All right. So from the slipping standards of our coastlines to the failed checks and balances that the Environment Agency administers to waste companies. Last week, waste giant Suez won an important legal victory against the Environment Agency, which could pave the way for waste firms to appeal their environmental permit compliance scores. Before we get into the uh, nitty gritty, Pippa, why does this legal win matter for business? 
So basically it matters because it could have vast cost implications for both the environment agency and for the waste industry. Um, And basically during a two-day judicial review at Leeds Administrative Court in October, Suez called for a full and impartial right of appeal against every compliance assessment report issued to waste operators. In the judgment issued last week, the judge described Suez as the clear winner in the case. There is an anacronym I'd love to pick up, which is this Compliance Assessment Report, or CAR. This isn't my Fiat 500. What is a CAR? So CAR forms are where EA officers record the findings of site inspections, audits and monitoring activities. So this includes compliance classification scheme scores, which determines the level of annual fees that waste firms must pay the environment agency. Um, And an adverse car may lead to enforcement action or to an increased financial charge. But currently operators have the right to challenge car forms, but only within 28 days of it being issued. And if it's disputed by the waste firm, the EA is required to review the car form and add further comments. But ultimately, it's the EA that makes the final decision on whether the car form is accurate and if there is no appeal thereafter. But basically, this legal ruling has changed that. Yep. Okay. So previously it's like you ask the teacher to relook at your work, but the teacher still grades you whatever they decide ultimately. Can you just explain a little bit then about this legal win? So during the hearing, the Environment Agency argued that there was no car appeals process because they said a car score is simply a feature of the agency's monitoring procedures and not a regulatory function. So that's that's the EA saying that's why we don't have to do this. Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of the heart of the the argument basically and the court ruled that a car definitely is a regulatory decision and therefore the EA should consider the provision of a right of appeal. Suez has won. Are they gloating, Shosha? I'm sure they're very happy about the ruling. Um, Mark Thompson, who's the chief legal officer at Suez UK, said the judgments created an opportunity to develop a clear appeal process for addressing these compliance assessments, whether it is a disagreement and promoting fairness and consistency. Um, So they're happy about that. He's also suggested that in future, you know, the industry could perhaps support in developing this new appeals process um, that works both for the agency and the operators. And this is sort of like working towards a more impartial process rather than one that's quite subjective. And they can say that they won. They won the case. Yeah, happy them. Watch this space. It'll be interesting to see the ramifications this has on the industry um, at large. Worth also saying that the Environment Agency was contacted for comment, but at the time of this recording was unavailable. Right, our final story sees us off to the land of national parks, with the government confirming the creation of a new one in England. Do we know where this is going to be? Not yet, but it is definitely one we'll be following um, and quite exciting. So Natural England set to consider a possible list of sites, which could include the Chilterns, the Cotswolds, um, and Dorset. So there's a lot of options there. It is interesting you mentioned the Chilterns and the Cotswolds, because that is something that I know um, Natural England were looking at back in 2021. But, you know, these AOMBs, they no longer exist. Um but their replacements, which were once mooted or thought to be, you know, a bigger, bolder AOMB, we don't know if they're that much better, do we, Pippa? Yeah, so basically now all designated AOMBs in England and Wales will now be called National Landscapes. 
And at first it just kind of seems like, you know, just another exercise renaming things like this, this kind of stuff happens all the time. But actually when um, ENDS looked at kind of the detail of, of the definition of these new national landscapes, it actually seems like there could be kind of a reversal in the kind of prominence of their meaning. Um, so we know that AOMBs had a single purpose and that was to conserve and enhance natural beauty. But under the new definition of national landscapes, the government has actually stepped back from its previously stated intention, which was to strengthen the purpose and duty of protected landscapes. And it's ditched a pledge that a core function of these new national landscapes should be to drive nature recovery. And the government has also rode back from its previous intentions that it wanted to make national landscape teams statutory consultees in the planning process. To be fair, you know, there was some better news for environmentalists last week. Um, and that is what? So the government also said that there will be 34 new landscape recovery projects um, across England, which it says will cover 200,000 hectares of land, including woodlands, rainforests and sustainable food production. Um, and these are in addition to the 22 landscape recovery projects that are already underway. Um, and for people that aren't familiar, landscape recovery projects are part of the government's environmental land management schemes and are the highest tier that farmers and land managers can apply for. And the ELMS, the environmental land management schemes, being the post-Brexit farming subsidy, which, you know, is going to make everything great and green or whatever, <laughs> whatever you'd like to, the government might say. Um, and it may well do. Um I was quite happy to read, and it almost it, when I was reading kind of the reaction to all this, it almost seemed as a bit of a surprise to campaigners, but I was quite happy to read about the rainforest action. Um, Shosha, is there anything you can say on that? Yeah, so they've confirmed um, £750,000 of funding that will be put into investment and research, as well as development of these sites. So that's to improve their resilience um, and also make sure they're protected. They also pledged an unspecified amount of funding um, to restore vulnerable woodland habitats, as well as some more support for landowners to grow and expand woodland cover. So that's a lot of good news for people who like trees. Yeah, for and sure. And also these unique habitats. Yeah, and to have, uh, you know, to put in place a rainforest, temperate rainforest plan, you know, I don't know, surprise, 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 surprise. Um as always, there are worries about any policy announcement, but this time, actually, there are worries from members within the government and regulators themselves. Mm. Yeah, Mike Clancy, who's the General Secretary of Prospect Union, said that basically this all has to be kind of understood in the backdrop of the fact that the DEFRA budget is expected to be cut by more than £500 million by the end of next year, which he said will have a disastrous impact on already struggling regulators. Um, he emphasised that Natural England and the Environment Agency are already at breaking point, facing recruitment and retention crisis, which we've talked about a lot on um, the Eco Chamber. Um, and he said, you know, without adequate funding for the guardians of our natural environment, there is little chance that the government's rhetoric will be able to meet its stated ambition. That's one union representing its members. There are others. Yes, there were similar worries voiced by the PCS union. And, you know, this this budget cut, the 500 million, that's sort of when you're looking at inflation as well. And that's a real time budget cut. that I think when we published a story on this, Defra denied. But, you know, it's it's looking at those um, surrounding pressures. PCS General Secretary Mark Sawatka said, we remain concerned about these issues. 
such as tree supply, as well as protecting that biodiversity, um, which the short-termism approach by this government has failed to understand. So there again, there's sort of concerns with these short-term measures that might not be taking into account the long-term pressures. All glitz and glam, says the unions. Right, okay. Uh, it is time now for our moment of the week. Uh, before we get into our deep dive, uh, a chance to reflect on something cool and wondrous or weird or funky. Uh, moments of the week, anyone? I have quite a nice story about a woman named Barbara Mulligan, who in her local park in Ealing found a new species of moth. Oh, wow. Um, it says in the BBC article that she is a lifelong moth enthusiast. Um, and that through DNA analysis, the National History Museum confirmed that the the species was unknown to science. And I just thought that was quite nice because, you know, in London, you don't necessarily think you're going to discover new new insects unknown to scientists. So mm. I thought that was quite nice. And that's lovely because it just shows you how important citizen science is, mm. you know, to especially in ecology. There's so much reliance on citizen scientists, which I don't think gets enough attention. But yeah, wonderful. Good news. Shosha? My story was um, also quite a good news story, depending on how you look at it. Um, A bewildered badger, as the BBC report, has been saved from a smelly situation after falling into a sewage tank at a wastewater plant. Um, So you have this poor badger um, managed to sort of stumble and trip into the tank, but luckily ended up on a ledge um, and was, was rescued. It did take over an hour for the RSPCA to get him out but they managed it and uh, they evolved a potentially sticky situation so great excellent badger smell survives Love it's also it. great when those sorts of stories make the news isn't it <laughs> yeah the bbc they're really on it they're good they're good yeah. they, they're, they're getting our clicks that's for sure it ends need some good news and there's a great picture of, of him post the fact as well okay check it out Time for a deep dive now, and it is all about net gain and the ENDS report. For our listeners unfamiliar with net gain, Pippa, what is it? So the biodiversity net gain policy is intended to create and leave natural habitats in a measurably better state than before, requiring most developments in England to deliver a minimum of 10% net gain. The policy is due to take effect from January onwards, after experiencing a slight delay earlier this year, with smaller house builders set to be impacted from April 2024. Um, And for all those who are keen to understand more about it, we actually have a webinar taking place next week on the 13th of December at 3pm. It's got a pretty star-studded lineup with Lucy Cheeseman, who's the Deputy Head of Land Use and Head of Biodiversity Net Gain at DEFRA. Also Nick White, who's the Principal Advisor for Biodiversity Net Gain at Natural England. And Jessica Lewis, who's the group head of sustainable places at the Berkeley Group. And that is cool. So we've got DEFRA, we've got Natural England, and we've got kind of one of the forerunners in the private sector, all speaking to our very own Tess Colley next week, next Wednesday. And can how do I go about looking at that, watching that? So if you're an end subscriber, you can automatically log into the webinar. And if you're not, you can take out a free trial and log into your account on the day to watch it live. So for those who don't know, who know or should know, NetGain, ENDS webinar, place to be people, make it happen. Um, and I'm going to sort of, we're going to sort of stick with the ENDS and the NetGain uh, for a bit longer because we do actually have a new video case study, which is up on our website now, listeners. 
do go check it out. It's a, a great case study that I was filming last month. And Shosha, who was playing host, did a fantastic job, by the way, was sort of keeping keeping the uh, the ship steady whilst I went out to speak to Homes England and film their site out in Brooklyn. Um, they've got this like they've got this flipping enormous element, sort of three thousand plus homes, and they've kind of trialed this metric. They've trialed the previous two point net gain metric. You want to know what net gain two is, guys? Listen into the webinar. Um, and it's, it was it was just a really fascinating film um, to kind of see how net gain can work in practice. So, so if you're curious, folks, do go check it out. How you can implement net gain on your site, or how it works in practice if you're a policymaker. Um, it's it's for anyone who wants to learn more about how net gain can be applied in practice. And Homes England have gone ahead to try and work out how this will impact their sites further down the line once this policy kicks in. Uh, come January so yeah I enjoyed making that so what can like I haven't watched it yet so what can we expect to, to kind of learn from the video yeah so it is that practical take home um, where I think I think there's one thing talking about policy or reading and writing about it which I think is wonderful and then there's the the fears and trepidations, quite quite rightly, that you know the private sector has when it always comes to this, you know, how do we make this abstract thing a real thing? Mm-hmm. So what I think the video does is show how a developer, admittedly Homes England, um, one of England's largest home builders, is developing a, a greenfield site previously on old farmland um, at a scale that that I think would be useful to a lot of home builders. Also for those in the, interested in the planning system, you know, like how does a site get through or how would a site in theory, because remember this, you know, they did it as a kind of an exercise rather than a mandatory mm-hmm. policy. How would a scheme get through the system and, and you know, and, and what sort of best practice? So what they were able to do uh, is show or demonstrate a 23% net gain uplift which, you know, is a, you know, almost or more than double what would be required. Um, and I think what's interesting is it's a greenfield because there's problems with greenfield. You know, it's all right building over a concrete parking lot. The biodiversity value is already pretty low in most cases. But how would you do it at a scale for like something like farmland? So a very long answer to a question, which was very short, but it's, I think it's that practical take home. And it's, it's, and I hope also done very, you know, in a visually interesting and entertaining way. Jonathan Ayres, their biodiversity director, took us around the site, showed us three examples of like this amazing uh, mitigation work they've been doing on hedgerows, woodlands, um, semi-natural grasslands, and kind of what they had to do and not do to make the numbers work, as well as create important wildlife-rich habitats. There is also nod to Nick White again, who will be on the webinar, um, a very interesting interview with Nick White about what developers and uh, landowners need to expect as net gain comes down the line. So so um, for you personally then, like filming this project, what did you find was the biggest takeaway that, for example, other people who might not be sort of developers or planners would also gain from sort of watching this film? It's complicated. It's important to understand that the metric grades habitats in different ways. So hedgerows are graded in a completely different way to an area habitat like grasslands, which are graded in a different way to uh, wetlands or water rivers. 
what I found so interesting about what Homes England have done and the developers they're working with and the ecologists, there is so much surveying work involved in that gain. The ecologists that have gone through the numbers is that I can I can so see net gain in the wrong hands being used as a box ticking exercise. But what Homes England showed on their site in Brooklyn in West Sussex was how to do net gain right, getting the numbers that they need, that they would need to require under this new statutory policy and more, 23% uplift, not 10%. But at the same time, still making sure that they're, you know, they're looking after protected species, which are covered under different license regimes. They're still trying to combine wins. Like how can you combine making new habitat for protected species and, and, and irreplaceable habitats like ancient woodland? But at the same time, can you still score some gains under the metric? Sure, not as many on a purely number basis, but can you complement landscape recovery at a scale or, or or offsetting at a scale that that can also benefit na- uh, nature and, and um, wildlife and um i think i think for me my biggest take home was super it, it is complicated the 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 ecologists behind this are you know they've been working for years and years when this idea first got mooted um and they've, they've got the numbers together and also they're working on how to integrate it with current existing regimes that they all they need to comply with, but also want to comply with. So, yeah, I, I, I think it was and just seeing it, seeing it at a scale, you know, like that you can't really see when you read an article, mm-hmm. uh, which I hope I hope uh, listeners, um, if you want to watch the film, um and you're a subscriber, that will be automatic. Just You can just log on. Um, if you're not, you can register for a free trial in the same way you can register for a free trial with the webinar. You can register for a free trial and watch the video and see what I'm talking about. Because, yeah, it is hard to to explain the scale. It's like a 100-plus hectare site. Oh, wow. It's, you know, I mean, we're talking thousands of homes, 3,000-plus under the metric, 3,500 in total. So, it, it, you know, you, you you almost need to see it to believe it. So it's a really important topic at the moment, isn't it? Because we're seeing, you know, the UK is extremely nature depleted and it's kind of like, how can we support our growing population whilst also not completely degrading the landscape that we want to protect so that we can also thrive? You know, it's, we always frame it as this altruistic thing of protecting the environment, but actually, you know, we rely on this environment being quite resilient too. So why do you think it's so important that we're learning more about this new measure that's being implemented? And what is the importance of sharing this sort of case study? I think what the the value of producing these case studies is, is that you can see like front runners, people who have done people who are doing things or have done things, what works, what doesn't. Um and yeah, you're right. We are living. We are, we are one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. Um, one in six species in Great Britain are at threat of extinction. The by all accounts, the numbers aren't good. Net gain is an interesting one. There are obviously philosophical uh, opponents to it. You know, how on earth can you even begin to start valuing a habitat with a with a number value? Um, environmental economists have a counter argument. You know, and some and some, you know, senior planning folk that I've spoken to in, in environmental NGOs have, have have said this to me, which is, well, things aren't great right now anyway. So a new measure 
to try and help things, you know, you know, let's let's give it a go. Um, and even some of the most the harshest academic critics out there on net gain still think in the round it will probably do some good. Now that is that's their words, not mine. I'm paraphrasing, but that is their words, not mine. There are problems with net gain outside of best case studies and best examples, which are things like, you know, how well resourced are local authorities? Do they have the ecologists to make to understand the numbers in relation to the actual habitats they need? Um, you know, that's something Jonathan Ayres in our video talks about is like it's not just creating nice habitats, it's creating the right habitats um, rather than just trying to score points under the metric. We might give you good points or high points, um, but actually what gives you the right points? I guess it is a really interesting time for environmental policymakers and practitioners where we sort of it's crunch time for a lot of these things. And net gain, obviously, is the first thing that, that we're going to see enacted. And you said, you know, one of the key takeaways for you was realising just how complicated that this all is. But what do you think, you know, what did Homes England have to say in terms of the main challenges for them? And like, what is kind of likely going to be the main challenges for developers? I think Homes England are in a, a more privileged position because they can, they're working at a really large scale. Um, and they, but, but, you know, you can still break down that the 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 way Brutley is set out, it's it's we are going to be creating a feature about this, so you'll be able to see this all mapped out with graphics and everything. It's going to be great, but it's not out yet. Working on it. Um, what you know, you can still look at the site parcels, and you know, hundred home here, three hundred homes here. You know, so the reason I say that is because it, I think it's land. I think it's can you bank enough land to mitigate the damage, if that's the right word, the impact of your homes on the habitats around it. If you're big big and big and large, you know, you can probably deliver, like Homes England have, all your on-site mitigations, all your mitigations on site, which is what the metric favours, which is what Natural England favours. If you can't, you've then got to start looking at um outside your development. Um, and you know, and then you've got to start speaking to other landowners to get their credits. Worst case scenario, you then go to the government for these net gain credits. Nick White was really interesting because these statutory net gain credits from the government sounds like they're going to be really pricey to stop that from happening, that chain of events, because he wants they want on-site, off-site, last resort government. Um I think so. I think the biggest challenge will be, yeah, how do you deliver these mitigations on site? Brownfield developers will have a very different situation to um, to, to developers who are on greenfield. Completely different proposition. That's not to say all brownfields are useless in, in, in habitat value. Not at all. You can get these wonderful mosaic sites. When you say brownfields, what, what are you referring to? So Yeah, so that's like previously developed you. land. Okay. Um, and greenfield to typically is is sort of the old farmlands, um, and you know it is it is like a it is an interesting point because you can create crazy numbers with net gain uplift. Like I know down in the Kibbert village down there, the developers created a hundred plus percent net gain uplift, but it was brownfield and it was you know all concrete essentially. So their valuations are a completely different thing to having to start with a fair an all right-ish old farmland. Um 
so again, yeah, it's all these all these things that need to be factored into probably pre-purchase and 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 very very importantly at, at the point of kind of like planning and like site planning and ecological surveys. Jonathan Ayres in the film, he's very I think he's a wonderful guide for the listener, uh, for the viewer, um, and he kind of explains it piece by piece how how some of the some examples of what they've done to make it work and um you know things that you might not even realize work really well you've got on site you know you can just make it better can you extend that hedgerow can you leave it and extend it you know and all of a sudden you're creating linear habitat units um so yeah watch the film see what you think i'm i'm actually really really curious to hear what um lucy cheeseman has to say next week on the webinar um that I think will be very, very interesting, as well as Nick White. He's always got some very interesting observations, and I'm sure Tess will be able to tease out those um, needed, important answers for all of our ENDS watchers. So, yeah. BNG, the business of biodiversity net gain, streaming now. And that's it. On today's episode, we've learned that the standards of England's bathing waters are slipping back into the stink that Suez has laid waste to the EA in a landmark legal victory, that the AONB is no more, but its replacement seems a shadow of what it was expected to be. And net gain, love it or hate it, it is coming. And ends can help serve as a guide. My thanks to Shosha Aidy and Pippa Neal for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, listeners, your views, your opinions. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe share it with a friend. Until the next time, I am glad to be back with you listeners. Take care.